Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Okay, everyone, welcome back to Across the Street. Today, we're going to be talking about amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, with Dr. Richard Bedlack, who's one of the premier ALS researchers and treaters in the country, and we also are lucky enough to have with us here at the Durham VA. So just to tell you a little bit about Dr. Bedlack, in case you haven't had a chance to meet him yet, he went to college at William & Mary in Virginia. He went to Connecticut for both an MD and a PhD in neuroscience. He did his medicine internship, neurology residency, neuromuscular fellowship, and master's in clinical research science here at Duke. And ever since then, he's been with us. So currently, he is a professor of neurology at Duke. He directs the Duke ALS Clinic, has won multiple teaching awards. He's won America's Best Doctor. He is the guy to know for ALS. I think that summarizes. I could probably go on. Is that right, Dr. Bedlack? Well, that's very kind of you, Laura. Thank you. Yeah, so we're going to learn a little bit about ALS today from the guy who knows more about it than anybody else. So let's start out with the easy stuff, Dr. Bedlack. What exactly is ALS? Yeah, so it's a neurodegenerative disease that most obviously affects part of the body called motor neurons. And so motor neurons are kind of like wires. They connect the front of your brain where you make decisions to the muscles that carry out your actions. And as this disease progresses, a person becomes disconnected with their muscles. They know what they want to do, but they can't get their muscles to do it. Typically, a person with ALS will experience fairly rapidly progressive loss of speech, swallowing, arm functions, leg functions, and ultimately breathing functions, which shortens the lifespan. On average, people with ALS live about two to three years from symptom onset. Wow, what about cognition, Dr. Bedlack? How does it affect that? Yeah, it's a great question. So for a long time, we thought that, that it only affected motor neurons. That's why I was careful to say most obviously. And then about uh, 15 years ago, somebody did some very careful studies where they performed neuropsychological testing on large series of consecutive patients presenting to ALS clinics. And we were shocked to find out that about 50% of people with ALS have some difficulty with mainly frontal, mainly executive functions. And so it's really frustrating to, to find this out because, you know, we built these multidisciplinary ALS clinics to be able to measure lots of different things in a person when they come in and to be able to offer lots of different options for compensating for what the disease is trying to take away. And some of these options are very complicated. And now we find out that, you know, a, a person with ALS, half of them might have some difficulty weighing complex information. And so we actually now screen everybody, every new patient using a screening tool called the ALS Cognitive and Behavioral Screen. And when it's abnormal, the way that we handle that is we sort of get the family to huddle up and say, hey, you know, we're gonna be talking about some tough stuff, some complicated decisions that we're gonna put out here in front of you during our time together. And you're gonna to have to make decisions together. Like it's very natural for a family member to just wanna say, whatever the patient wants, I'm gonna support them, but it's totally up to them. And unfortunately, if we find that this cognitive impairment is there, you really can't do that. I mean, the person might not be able to make those decisions on their own. Wow. So having a support system is really, really important with this disease. It's so important. I mean, when we first learned about this, we wondered, you know, how relevant is it if it took over 100 years to figure out that this problem was there and it takes, you know, such detailed testing? Well, it turns out it's very relevant because when cognition is impaired, it's been shown that people are not compliant with the things that we offer them, medications, exercises, equipment that we know keep them out of the hospital and prolong their life. They don't use them. 
And we used to just shrug our shoulders and say, well, you know, sometimes people are stubborn. It's not stubbornness. It's just that people I don't think understand what the thing is. And also prognosis is affected. You know, people who have impaired cognition survive up to a year less compared to people who don't have that problem. Sure, yeah. So how would these patients present? What kind of person should we be looking for ALS in? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. And, you know, part of the reason it's so important for all doctors, especially primary care doctors, to know about this is that, believe it or not, it takes about a year from symptom onset to the time that someone gets diagnosed with ALS in a clinic like mine. And, you know, there's a lot of segments to what we call the diagnostic delay, but certainly part of it is that the first few doctors who see the patient are not thinking about this. And that's understandable. It's a, it's a rare disease. I mean, there's only about 6,000 new cases of ALS in the United States a year. So, you know, many doctors may never see it or only see one or two cases in their whole career. But the thing to watch out for is gradually progressive, painless weakness. And that most often happens in an arm or a leg, and it's most often distal. So like we might hear a story, you know, when this first started, I just noticed I was having a little trouble with my left hand, you know, buttoning my top button on my shirt. And I, you know, I thought maybe my shirts had shrunk or, you know, that I had carpal tunnel, I wore a brace, or some people will say I was running and I noticed I didn't have the same spring in my right leg and my times were getting pushed out. And so I just took a break, thought maybe I overdid it. But of course, you know, most of these patients went in to see their primary care doctor first. And understandably, the first thought was this must be like a pinched nerve. And, you know, the difference between how ALS presents and how a pinched nerve presents is usually with a pinched nerve, there's pain and there's numbness, and that's not typically true of ALS. And so I would say anytime uh, you know, any doctor sees a painless weakness that's progressing, think about this. So it sounds like the presentation is pretty unique, and what we need to do is just have it on our radar. How would we really cinch the diagnosis then if we're thinking about it? I mean, you, you're probably gonna wanna send them to a neurologist because you know the diagnosis of ALS, unfortunately, there's no test. There's no blood test anyone can do. There's no picture anyone can take. It's mainly made by the history, which we just talked about, and by the exam. And on the neurological exam, what we're looking for are widespread upper motor neuron signs. So you know, when the first group of the upper motor neurons starts to get sick, People have increased muscle tone, they have hyperreflexia, they have the emergence of reflexes that should not be there in healthy adults like a Babinski sign. And when the lower motor neurons get sick, people get lower motor neuron signs. They get muscle atrophy, twitching or fasciculations, and weakness. And we can confirm the lower motor neuron signs by an EMG, but, but even an EMG doesn't come back and say, this is ALS. It really requires you know, somebody who's comfortable with a neurological exam to say, hey, there's widespread upper and lower motor neuron signs here. And to do some testing, you know, looking for mimickers, of which there are not many when the disease is widespread, and that's how the diagnosis gets made. Got it. So if we hear that someone is presenting potentially asymmetrically with isolated motor symptoms, no sensory changes, no pain, that's when we should start thinking about this and refer to a neurologist. Exactly, Laura. I think, I think that could help some with the diagnostic delay is, is getting folks to a, a neurologist faster. Because again, I mean, I think the most common first diagnosis that I see is a pinched nerve, which again is understandable. It's so much more common than ALS. But typically when that diagnosis gets made, you know, there's conservative therapy, you know, anti-inflammatories, bracing, physical therapy that goes on for a few months. And then, you know, when that doesn't work, patients often get referred to a surgeon and, you know, that can take more time. And if it's a good surgeon, they'll recognize right away, wait a second, something's not making sense here. But if it's a real busy surgeon who's not taking their time, the patient might just get it operated on. About 15% of all my ALS patients in the last 20 years 
have had unnecessary surgeries for things like carpal tunnel or cervical or lumbar radiculopathy. And, you know, when you throw a surgery into the mix, now you're delaying the diagnosis even more, you know, typically at least three more months. And all that time that the patient's out there not getting diagnosed, you know, they're not getting started on disease modifying medications and they're not getting, you know, to be in clinical trials and things like that. So it's heartbreaking sometimes when patients get to me and it's, the disease is already so far progressed that there's not a lot of motor neurons to save. And some of my new patients are not even candidates for any of the clinical trials because they've lost so much function. Wow. So what is the prognosis and does it depend on when they present? The prognosis is on average about three years from symptom onset, people will have to you know, make a choice about whether they want to have a tracheostomy and live on invasive ventilation but there's a wide range. So I've definitely seen people who presented and only lived a few months from start to finish. And then I've also seen people who've lived for decades. Stephen Hawking is a great example of someone with ALS who, you know, if you saw the movie, The Theory of Everything, they told him at around age 20, this is what you got. You know, the average person lives two to three years and he wound up, you know, living more than 50 from the day that he was diagnosed. And Laura, I've even found a small group of people that I never dreamed existed 48 now across the whole world who have sent me their medical records and they really appear to have had ALS progressed to where they were disabled and then recovered and in many cases made a complete recovery back to normal. I call those ALS reversals and I've got a lot of research trying to understand why those happened and how maybe I could make that happen more often. Wow, Dr. Bedlack, you have to tell me more about that. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that I was taught that turned out not to be true about ALS, but you know, one of them is that the prognosis is very different and, you know, progression is not even linear in a single patient. So it's not at all uncommon for people with ALS to have periods that can last sometimes months or even longer where they don't progress very much or even recover a little bit. For example, I've, I've seen people come in and say, you know, I couldn't move my left hand for the last two years and now I can wiggle my left pinky. And that's exciting. You know, they, they wonder, is it my, am I starting to recover? Most of the time, unfortunately, that goes away again. And I think, you know, there's just this balance between the disease trying to denervate, trying to, you know, have motor neurons pull away from muscles, and then the body trying to recover through collateral sprouting, what we call re-innervation. There's this dance that we're doing. But I never dreamed that someone could actually completely recover from this. And I first ran across this uh, around 2011. I was asked as part of my ALS Untangled program. ALS Untangled is this program I started to try to help patients and families make better decisions about some of the alternative therapies that are out there on the internet. There's tens of thousands of things being advertised as effective and perfectly safe for ALS. And, you know, unfortunately, the uh, evidence that is used to support claims like this is often incomplete and sometimes even just completely inaccurate. So we started this whole program to sort of create a virtual bulletin board where patients and families could send in ideas. I want you to check this out for us. Created this whole sort of standard operating protocol, which now involves a team, 120 clinicians and scientists from across 11 countries that are working on all these ideas that patients wanna know about, a sort of systematic approach to how we do this and how we write up the reviews and where we publish them. And you know, in the midst of that program, somebody said, hey, take a look at this energy healer from New York City. He's got this website mm -hmm. and there's a video with a patient saying they had ALS and they were near death and they went to see this guy and now they're all better. Sure enough, I saw the video and I used social media to find the person. 
and they were nice enough to send me their medical records. And I remember about halfway through the records, I had the goosebumps. I turned to my wife and I said, you know how I'm already considered kind of a maverick in the ALS field because of the way I look and the way I dress and the things I work on. I said, wait till the next big uh, ALS meeting when I stand up at the podium and say, I found the cure for ALS. It's energy healing. <laughs> because I mean, I was absolutely convinced that, you know, this lady had ALS. She had a classic story, classic neurologic exams, a classic EMG, a ton of testing for mimics all done by people at the University of Virginia that I know and trust. Mm -hmm. And you know, they documented progression to where she was completely paralyzed over the course of a year, short of breath, you know, the notes say, you know, discussion was had and the decision to pursue hospice was made. And then, you know, instead of going home and going to hospice, she went to see this energy healer. And over the next two years, she recovered all of her strength. And that was 30 years ago. She's still alive. She still runs a farm in Virginia where she climbs ladders and stacks firewood. And I didn't know what to make of that. And so I've started to collect these because I believe there could be something in these patients that's the key to reversing ALS in everyone. Maybe if I could figure out you know, how these people beat ALS, I could stumble onto something about the biology that we don't know that we could exploit, build a drug that would reverse ALS in everyone. What do we know about why this happens to people in the first place? So how can we find the targets? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is, this is one of the most amazing things that we've learned in the past 20 years. It's not one disease. I mean, it's, it's a bunch of different diseases that sort of overlap in that they kill motor neurons. So 10% of ALS is genetic. In 10% of cases, we can find a disease-causing gene. And we now know of more than 30 different genes that can cause ALS. And that's just for the 10%. The other 90% where we can't find a gene, we think that there must be environmental triggers. You know, it, it's probably not just one trigger. We would have figured that out by now. It's probably a collection of them. And you, know, you may have hundreds of different combinations of triggers that get you there. And so some of the triggers that we know about being a military veteran contributes mm. to ALS. Military veterans, for some reason, are twice as likely to die from ALS no matter when or where they serve. There also is now some evidence for a toxin, which is called beta-methylaminoalanine, BMAA, and some evidence for the reactivation of an endogenous retrovirus, which we all have inside us, called human endogenous retrovirus K. There's a group at the NIH that thinks that that retrovirus may become reactivated in people with ALS and may actually be the cause of their disease. Wow. So there's a lot of stuff that's up and coming right now. What is your most exciting project? My most exciting project is the ALS reversals because I keep finding more. I mean, I'm up to 48 now. I just found another one last week. And, you know, I've, I've got so many collaborations going on around the world to try to understand these. I mean, I've got a collaboration with the CREATE Consortium out of the University of Miami to do whole genome sequencing on them. I've got a collaboration with the National ALS Registry to do environmental questionnaires. I've got a collaboration with the Duke Microbiome Center. We're gonna look at the microbiome in these patients and compare it to people with more typically progressive ALS. I've got a collaboration with the NIH Biobank so that if, if some of these patients eventually pass away from old age, they'll donate their brains and spinal cords and we'll be able to look histologically to see what does their histology look like compared to a person with more typically progressive ALS. But I think the most exciting things going on in the world are the studies that attack these causes that we talked about. Because I, I feel like, you know, for a long time, what we've been doing is going after events that are sort of midstream in the whole cascade that causes ALS, because that's all we knew how to do. You know, we went after oxidative stress with antioxidants and neuroinflammation with different kinds of anti-inflammatory regimens and mitochondrial dysfunction, 
but you know, none of that stuff is the cause. I mean, all that stuff is somewhere downstream. And you know, if you can imagine something causes it and you know, quickly you have a dozen or more pathways going awry, any one of which can kill a motor neuron, then going after one or even a few of these pathways is probably not gonna make a huge dent. But if you can isolate the cause and remove it, now you might actually be able to stop or reverse the disease. That's incredible, but there's so many different forms. It sounds like it's gonna be hard to find a single silver bullet. Honestly, Laura, I think it's like cancer. You know, nobody goes to the doctor anymore and comes home with a diagnosis of cancer and, and one pill. I mean, there's so many different subtypes of even lung cancer or breast cancer. I mean, and the subtypes really define how you get treated. And it's by subtyping cancers, you know, so specifically that we've actually had such great luck with some subsets. And I think that's where ALS is going. A few years from now, we won't be treating everyone the same. We'll be, in the first visit, we'll be trying to figure out what, what type of ALS do you have and let's design a regimen that we know targets your subtype. Yeah, wow. So I'm excited to see where this goes. In the meantime, how are we treating these patients? There's some medicines and there's some supportive therapies. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so happy with that progress too, you know, because when I was in residency and I saw my first patient with this disease, I was immediately struck by the incredible story and all the exam findings. I've never, never seen so many exam findings in one patient before. And I was just horrified when, you know, the person that was teaching me said, we have no idea what causes it and there's really not much we can do about it. We can keep people comfortable at the end, but they just have to go home and get their affairs in order. And you know, that was around 1997. That's when I think I was driving home that day and I said, we've, we've got to be able to do better. Multidisciplinary care is really the most important thing. And so I've got a team that includes 17 different clinicians. And you know, we all work together. We all try to see every patient every time they come. And so there's people who are experts in swallowing, you know, speaking, environmental controls, nutrition, breathing, arm functions, leg functions, some of the social aspects of it, some of the nursing aspects of it, some of the research aspects of it. So, you know, with this team, we're able to spend, you know, most of a day with each patient and we're able to really carefully measure all the things the disease is trying to take away and provide people with a long list of ways to compensate and live a more normal and longer life. We have a lot of options and we have a couple of medications. I mean, the drug really is all, it's an oral glutamate antagonist. It's been around you know, for more than 20 years. It clearly prolongs survival. Unfortunately, probably a small amount in most patients, but it's very easy to take. It's very safe. Most people tolerate it quite well. So when I'm looking at the benefit to burden ratio, I mean, small benefit, but really small burden. So it makes sense for most people. And then we have a newer medication, which is called Radicava. It's a little different story. The data is a little bit more murky on you know, whether this really does help and whether it might only help a subset. And there's quite a few burdens with that. It's an intravenous medication and it requires 14 days of IV infusions the first month and then 10 IV infusions every month after that for the rest of someone's life. And with that many IVs, you need to have a central line place. So mm -hmm. I kind of look at that and I say to patients, you know, there may be some benefit for a subset. It's a little more murky than with Riliazole. There's a pretty high burden with this. And so that's the way I try to present things to patients just in terms of what I know about the potential benefits and burdens. And then we try to let patients and families decide. We wanna empower them to really understand each option and then let them decide. Because I don't think there's a right answer to how you go through ALS. I think there's a lot of pathways depending on you know, that person's own sort of definition of quality of life. 
you know, I think one of the things that struck me that first day, you know, in late 1990s was that this disease was like a bully. Like I felt like that patient and, you know, and, and their family were being bullied, like all control was being taken away from them. I've tried really hard to give people a lot of options, but ultimately I think that patients should be involved in everything that happens in ALS. So, you know, whether that's the design of a new research study, whether that's, you know, Congress considering a new law that's related to ALS, you know, whether that's a regulator like the FDA deciding whether to approve a therapy or not, patients should be at the table. I mean, we need to hear their voice in how we should be doing all this. And so recognizing that not every patient feels comfortable doing things like that, that not many of them maybe don't have the right background or training to be able to get involved in those things easily. I created a program called the ALS Clinical Research Learning Institute, and it was based after other programs in diseases like cancer and Parkinson's. It's a training program for patients who you know wanna take a greater role in ALS research and advocacy. We bring them in for an intensive two-day training so that they can understand the language of research, understand, you know, all the different steps for how drugs get approved, understand, you know, where there are opportunities for them to get involved. And when they graduate from this program, we call them research ambassadors and we meet with them by teleconference every month. So there's now 350 of wow. these ALS research ambassadors that are active and we connect them with stakeholders. So sometimes we have a company that says, hey, we're, we're going to do a new clinical trial and we'd like some patient input. Well, we get them on the call. We have them present what they're doing to the research ambassadors and the research ambassadors have a chance to weigh in. Wow, that's incredible. It sounds like it's a whole day affair to come to one of your clinics. Yeah, if you came, you'd spend most of the day with us. It's very different than anything else I've seen. It's incredibly resource intensive. And you know, the trick is how do you keep something like this afloat? Because there's no way you can actually bill enough to make all this stuff even revenue neutral. And so the only way we can do it is by raising outside funds. And you know, our main donor is the North Carolina chapter of the ALS Association. And so we're blessed to have a fairly large grant each year that allows me to offset some of the, the clinical losses that some of these people would have by coming and spending a whole day with me and maybe not seeing nearly as many patients as they might see if they were in another clinic. So Dr. Redback, how do we get our vets to you? How do we get them to this clinic? My clinic is available to any veteran. Veterans at the Durham VA should come right across the street, see my Duke team, and then you know, based upon what options the patient decides to get, I can go back over to the VA and, and work with the team over there and try to get all those options for them. The Durham VA recognizes that we don't have this kind of team there. And so they've been very good about allowing you know, community care referrals. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Dr. Bedlack. Congratulations on the success that you've had so far. Since you're talking about raising funds for research, did you participate in the Ice Bucket Challenge? Many times. So first and foremost, I'm so proud that that was started by two patients who a few years prior had actually attended one of my clinical research learning institutes. Really? I don't know if one thing had anything to do with the other, but I like to believe that maybe they felt a little bit empowered by the training to be able to just go out there and try something. And, you know, what they tried worked unbelievably well. I think everyone is still trying to figure out how to create something that works this well again, because, you know, just in the span of two months, the two Facebook videos that these patients put up resulted in hundreds of thousands of Wikipedia searches about ALS. So many people learned about this disease and it resulted in $220 million raised for ALS research in just a couple months. I've been dunked many times and let me tell you one thing, it's a lot colder than you think. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Dr. Bedlack. It has been an absolute honor to speak with you today. Well, it's my pleasure, Laura. Thank you for having me. As always, the views and opinions expressed during this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Durham VA or the Veterans Health Administration. 